Business owners are cluing into the fact that Bitcoin is here to stay, but its adoption is only about where internet adoption was in the mid-90s. In other words, there's still a ton of upside and opportunity. If you want to learn how other business owners and entrepreneurs are using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses so that you can too, stick around at the end of this episode to hear the trailer for my newest podcast, Business Bitcoinization. And now, on to today's episode. You're listening to the Life as Leadership podcast. Are you looking for motivation and encouragement on your path to becoming a better leader? If so, you've come to the right place. Keep listening to find a community of leaders committed to learning and taking action to improve their world. The Life as Leadership podcast, where leaders gather to grow together. Here's your host, Josh Friedemann. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast this week. I'm so glad that you are tuning in. Now, as regular listeners know, I'm usually joined in the studio by a couple others, but that's not the case for today's episode, because as this episode is airing, I'm actually finishing up a mastermind event out in San Diego. But later this week, I'll have a couple others joining me in the studio to discuss the interview that we're going to be hearing today. And I want to go ahead and give you a heads up. I think this interview and the subject of this interview could be a paradigm shaper for you and your leadership. So get ready for a great interview and come back on Friday to hear the discussion about what we're gonna hear today. David Kamalos is the CEO of Syntegrity, which is a consulting firm that specializes in applying the complexity formula in organizations. David has done this in some of the most interesting and high-stakes situations in the world, including inside Fortune 15 boardrooms with international aid, in content creation in sports and entertainment, and in improving access to life-saving products. David Benjamin co-founded Syntegrity and is the chief architect behind the organization's implementation of the complexity formula outline in today's book. David advises Fortune 500 companies and government leaders on how to organize for complexity. Together, they are the authors of Cracking Complexity, the breakthrough formula for solving just about anything fast. Here are David Komlos and David Benjamin. David and David, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you. So if you would, could you give us an overview of what you do in your work at Syntegrity? So basically the formula uh, described in the book is a a recipe that we follow in business as we're working with large organizations on their defining challenges, the defining moments um, that result from uh, complexity in the environment, complexity within their organizations. We help them very, very quickly get all the right people together, um, figure out what needs to happen position themselves where people are mobilized and see clearly what needs to happen, believe in it, and are ready to execute. And would you say these moments are inflection points or are these things that come up in a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis? These are defining moments on defining challenges, whether an organization is midstream in transformation or digital or trying to take cost out sustainably or stem an epidemic or figure out you know, behavioral health in their state. Whenever an organization or a leader is facing a multidimensional challenge, either at the, you know, before they embark on it or, or midstream, there are inflection points, as you refer to them. There are turning points, moments of truth, if you will. And in those moments of truth, where things are getting bogged down or have the opportunity to take flight, um, they bring us in to apply the formula to have things take flight, have people get mobilized around 
a clear plan of action. And I think I, I would just very quickly add that um, what makes my life interesting, what makes our life interesting is that uh, what we do is completely industry agnostic. Um, it's, it's problem agnostic. So we're dealing with a whole range of complex issues in every industry, uh, in governments, uh, working with different kinds of groups all the time. So we're going to be getting deeper into the subject as the interview unfolds, but I'm hoping that just as we as we start off the interview today, you can give us an overview of what the complexity formula is. Yeah, basically it's a uh, step-by-step approach to take any challenge, no matter how big, and go at it in the right way. So complexity, um, if, you, if you don't mind me taking a step back and just doing a quick definition for you, is um, sort of defined as uh, uncertain, uh, unscientific, a lot of moving and interdependent parts. Um, There's usually an enormous uh, human dimension to what's going on. And because of that, uh, it's new, it's different every time uh, versus sort of more technical challenges, which you would call complicated, where there is a blueprint for solving it and any expert who knows how to execute the blueprint can come in and solve it for you. So complexity is really uh, something that is requiring a new answer every time. So when you're facing those kinds of challenges, you can't just apply the same approach that gets you solutions to complicated things, which is to bring in an expert to kind of walk you through and take you through the checklist. Um, The approach is very different. So the formula is about what is the right approach and how do you execute that. Starts with coming to grips with the fact that you're facing complexity and as a leader, um, releasing yourself from the obligation of knowing the answer uh, and releasing yourself from the obligation of needing to look like you know the answer. Uh, you, you recognize that this is complex. I need help. And the help that you need is the people in and around the organization. Um, so these are people who work for you potentially, people who are partners of yours, people you've never met potentially from outside your organization, maybe even outside your industry, who collectively represent what's called requisite variety, the the necessary and sufficient mix of people who have enough of knowledge, experience, uh, expertise, et cetera, to match the complexity of the challenge you're facing. And then really the rest of the formula is how you take that requisite variety group um, and put them into an environment where they can very, very rapidly um, encounter each other directly in the context of the topics that they've identified are most important to answer in order to resolve whatever the complex challenge is, uh, work together iteratively, um, find answers together that are both sometimes uh, the aggregation of what they collectively know and sometimes emergent um, from the stimulus of what everybody knows and believes and thinks and the great ideas they're bringing to the point where over three rounds they have um, landed on something that they truly feel they've each contributed to, that they understand, and that they believe in. So it sounds like this concept of requisite variety is one of the things that can make or break the success of handling a complex situation. I'm wondering, can you speak to what that looks like to develop a team or a group of people that is sufficient to be considered requisite variety? Yeah, so the law of requisite variety says only variety can destroy variety, which means that when you're dealing with a complex, multidimensional, high-variety challenge, the only way you're going to get after it at pace and at scale is by matching the variety of the challenge with the variety of knowledge, experience, information, data, 
influence talent that exists in your ecosystem. So then you say, okay, well, what variety is that? Well, this is about assembling special purpose groups of people, people who've been carefully chosen to tackle a, a special purpose, a, a challenge. And so you, you, we have what we call the 12 zones of variety, um, where you, you literally rigor, rigorously go through these 12 zones of who are the people in the operation, who are the people around the operation, who are the decision makers, who are the loyalists, who are the cynics, all sorts of different ways and lenses to look through to identify, given the challenge that you're trying to address, um, answering a series of questions, who are the right individuals from inside my organization and from around my organization collectively to bring to bear on that challenge. Sometimes you're looking at people just within your team and maybe some people adjacent to the team. Other times if it's like a three-year strategy um, or a, a defining moment in an organization's life, you may be looking at two people from your management consulting firm uh, people from your agency of record, uh, a systems integrator, someone who used to work for the regulator, people from across various levels of hierarchy in the organization, and so on and so forth. For every variety, there's a different v group that makes up the requisite variety to tackle that challenge. So as I'm listening to this, it sounds like you'll probably need a large group of people to tackle a complex issue. Is, is that correct? It, what's, what's beautiful about the uh, the phrase that David just gave you, only variety destroys varieties, depending on the variety that you're dealing with in terms of the complex challenge, you might need 12 people or you might need 50 people. Um, so, so it really is a matching equation. It's a matter of thinking that through. And again, it, it sounds very uh, lofty and theoretical. But if you think as a leader in terms of what's what are the right additions I would need to make to whatever team I'm leading – um, what, what are the perspectives I haven't already accounted for in my team? What are the demographic differences? Do I have a young person? Um, who from the outside can I get the customer voice into my team somehow? It's that kind of thinking that uh, we're encouraging leaders in general to do to, to really stretch beyond who they normally involve. And I will add that when you look at variety, you're looking at uh, two, two buckets, if you will. Who do I need to bring together to solve the challenge, to wrestle the challenge to the ground? And the second bucket, whose buy-in do I need? Now, oftentimes, those are overlapping individuals, but sometimes you've, you're bringing people to the table who don't necessarily have much to contribute to the thinking necessarily, but whose buy-in is critical. And so as you look through those two lenses and add the 12 zones of variety through those two lenses, those two buckets, you tend to get larger more comprehensive groups of people together. And like you just said, David, this is a pretty theoretical thing at first. I'm wondering, can you give us some examples of organizations that handled a complex issue well through bringing people together and making sure that they had a plan in place to tackle the issue? Sure. And I'm not going to name names, but uh, I was recently working on a merger in, a man in manufacturing. And what was happening was two companies that had been uh, owned by the same parent company but were run separately were being integrated. And so you think about what's the right variety if you're trying to accelerate the success of an integration like that with two different corporate cultures, um, previous competitors with each other. Who do I need to include to get this right? So what they did is they included um, far beyond the executive leadership team or even the senior leadership team from the companies, but right down the ranks – 
to the people on the shop floor, to the people who are at customer sites regularly. Hmm. Um, they covered the geographies. They, you know, part of the strategy of the merger was to, to be able to internationalize more effectively. So they made sure to bring in uh, people with uh, the internationalization perspective. They brought in some of the outside consultants they were working with, and they brought in people from the parent company in Europe um, who had, again, their own perspectives and aspirations for the merger. And because they brought such a broad group together, they were able to, um, in their own words, accelerate through four months of churn, get the issues identified, find out what was really going on in the rank and file as people were being communicated to, um, what the objections were, what the concerns were, and very, very rapidly build a plan together to execute that. And the side benefit of doing it that way is not only do you get the right plan well-informed by all the right people, you also have got a critical mass of leaders and doers and influencers from across the ranks ready to execute the plan. So there are a number of young leaders who listen to this podcast and a lot of young leaders haven't had the opportunity to handle complex situations yet. What does it look like to handle a complex situation not using this model? Does that make sense? Because th this makes sense. Are there other approaches that are less effective that we should be aware of so that we don't try to handle complexity the wrong way? Generally speaking, um, you're either looking at bringing uh, a large group of people together to interact with one another which if you abstract that, you can name it many to many, many, many people having many conversations with many other people. Um, and the more traditional approach to problem solving, um, whether it's at a strategic level or operational level, is a leader saying, you know, I don't really know uh, the path to success here. I don't know what my strategy should be. Um, I'm either going to strike a task force, a few smart people internally, or I'm going to bring in a consulting firm, uh, also a few people, and I'm going to make them the star attraction. So that is usually referred to as the hub and spoke model. If you think of a bicycle wheel, there's the hub and the spokes. And the hub is set up typically either a task force or, or a team of consultants who recognize that they have a lot to uncover when they're talking, you know, tasked with growing an organization or figuring out how to deal with the opioid epidemic or, you know, how to take cost out sustainably or launch a new product or dominate a sector, they realize there's a lot we have to find out. And so they interview people, they interview subject matter experts, they interview stakeholders, they interview decision makers, they interview doers. But if you look at the, the model, the bicycle wheel, <clears throat> the information that they gather is in, going in one direction. They are asking questions and they are being, being given answers. Um, the onus rests on the hub, whether it's an internal task force or a consulting firm, to do all the thinking, to uh, sense and absorb and think about everything that's being given to them, synthesize it all, come up with some really good decisions, which oftentimes they do uh, after quite some time, um, and then convince the organization that this is the path to follow. So if I were to kind of pick that up but come at it from a different perspective, the young leader, um, first of all, everybody is facing complex challenges, uh, you know, throughout their life, particularly when um, you're making a decision about what program to go into at school or where do I live and set up a family or what career should I go into. Um, those are all complex challenges because there is no right answer out there that applies to you 
at this time, at this point in your life. So the wrong way to approach those kinds of challenges, um, and I think we instinctually know this, the wrong way to do that is to pick up a book, read a book and think you're going to find the answer in the book, or uh, go to a guidance counselor and expect that the answers they give you are the definitive right answers. There are no experts in those kinds of complex challenges we face in life um, that are just sitting there waiting for you. The right way to approach it, if, if you ascribe to what we're talking about, and there's a lot of people who do this, is just very naturally do this, reach out to a good mix of people who represent uh, and know you well, who don't know you well, but are respected uh, in your community, or again, maybe a thought leader or two who, who have books written on the things you're pondering. Get a lot of stimulus, a lot of input from the right variety of people. You're going to find yourself making the right choices far more readily than just adopting what somebody else is telling you to do. So one of the things you talk about in your book is that oftentimes, when handled correctly, you can you can come to a solution for a complex problem within two to three days. And I'm wondering, what does that look like? Is it a matter of just getting the right people together and not leaving the room until you've figured out the answer, or is it more than that? There, there's more structure necessary than that. We talk about um, – because, again, many people – and probably including people who are very early in their career, most people have encountered um, 24 person meetings where everyone's around a boardroom table trying to figure something out. And it just doesn't work. Um, you might have seven or eight people who are actively participating, uh, but they're not on good behavior because in order to, to get your voice in, you can't be listening and you're, you're uh, speech making instead of in conversation. And then everyone else in the room is disengaged and on their phones, etc. So, you need some structure and you need to set up a system where everybody is methodically interacting directly with everybody else at some point in time because you don't know what combination of people are going to lead to the insights and breakthroughs where the answers lie. So you have to be very systematic about how you combine people. You have to be very systematic about um, what they're talking about and, in fact, enable them to tell you what they need to talk about. So this is, again, all steps in the formula. And then iteration, very importantly, you need, whenever you get a group of people together, um, people come in with their preconceptions, their assumptions, their beliefs, their knowledge base. Uh, they need to spend time listening to each other and they need to spend time putting voice to their concerns and their fears and their frustrations so that other people can listen to them. So we talk about the need for three iterations, which it has been identified as just the right number of iterations you generally need to get to breakthroughs. Um, first iteration, issues, opportunities, challenges, griping, telling stories. Second iteration, like true ideation, pure brainstorming, getting ideas out there, um, reflecting on the issues and what you've heard and what other people have said. And third iteration, pulling all that together into a finite set of recommendations. And again, the structure of iteration, the structure of organizing people in a way where everybody's interacting with everybody else the structure of making sure that you never have too many people trying to talk at once. All of those ingredients uh, are necessary to get a large group very, very quickly to results. So optimally, leaders aren't going to be focused on a single problem. Obviously, when a complex situation comes up, there needs to be a rapid solution, if at all possible. At the same time, leaders need to be aware of the rest of their organization. Are there things that leaders need to be doing in order to prepare their entire organization for going through this process, even for those who aren't part of the team who comprises the requisite variety that we've talked about? I would emphasize, I'm looking at David, uh, wondering what he would say to that question, but I would emphasize 
communication. Um, so it is, it is the case that requisite variety literally means not everybody. It, it can't be everybody. So by definition, you need to be thinking about how to spread what happens to the group of people who have directly co-created the answers to whatever question they're dealing with. How do you spread that to others? And you can do that, um, some of the powerful ways we've seen to do that is to take a subset of the people who were there and co-created um, the right answers. A good cross-functional mix of people who are all now singing off the same song sheet and can finish each other's sentence, getting them out to um, explain what happened, explain their conclusion, uh, sorry, their conclusions, and literally um, look people in the eye with that belief that this is the right thing to do. Um, but again, a cross-functional team that you would never see sitting together and so tightly aligned. Are there any other principles or models that leaders should be aware of as they are entering into a process of approaching a complex problem that we haven't talked about already? Yeah, I mean, I think what's really, really important, maybe even obvious, but um, really not commonplace, is making sure you reach shared understanding before you get to action. It, if you've ever seen two people talking to each other where they think they're having a conversation um, and you're observing it and you see two different sets of, of uh, assumptions and different languages being spoken and terminology and jargon that really means nothing more than the face value word um, and each has their own inter interpretation of it. They are not in a position of shared understanding, but they're very happy to talk about action. So what happens when you do that is you get actions that are disconnected from what really has to happen. And sometimes you agree on a plan where, in fact, you're not agreeing on anything because you each have your own interpretation of what you've agreed to. So shared understanding first, really spending the time going through the frustration of translating your thoughts to other people and understanding what they're saying before you start talking to, about what to do with them, about it. I think really important principle. Are there any other key ideas that you would like to make sure that the listeners are aware of in your book, Cracking Complexity, before we finish this part of the interview today? I think um, we've alluded to it. We haven't really said it explicitly, but I think it's really important is when you're dealing with something complex, the wrong thing to do is to outsource. The right thing to do is to believe that the right answers reside around you and in your organization um, and approach things that way. So if you go in believing that you don't have the right answers and it's better to reach out to someone else to figure this out for you, you're reaching out to someone who has none of the context, much less of the stake, much less interest and knowledge and belief and experience than the people around you. They're going to do some very good work. Uh, if you've hired, for example, a good management consulting firm, a lot of smart people, a lot of really solid research, but they're missing a lot of context and they're not going to get the full context um, just through interviews. So again, very, very importantly, recognizing the value of the talent in and around your own ecosystem as the place to turn when you're looking for important answers. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining the podcast today and for sharing about your new book, Cracking Complexity. Before we finish, I have a few final questions that are meant to inspire us toward better leadership. So you ready for this? Sure. What is some lesson saying or experience that continues to influence your leadership to this day? For me, it's only variety absorbs variety. Only variety can destroy variety. And from that, that's a universal truth, first principle that, that governs a lot of my, my own behaviors as a leader.
Uh, I'm going to go personal for a minute. It's something my father said to me. At some point, he made a very explicit pull aside, David, you need to understand that people in the world are good. There are a few exceptions out there, but people have good intentions. People have good meaning. You need to always assume that when you're meeting someone new. Use three descriptors to finish this sentence. A leader is self-aware, a servant, and determined. I would add um, a strong listener, an enabler, and uh, self-deprecating. What is a question that leaders should be asking either themselves or others? Well, in a very self-serving way, because we did write this book, I would say um, when you're looking at a defining problem, when there's something keeping you up at night, asking yourself, is this something that, you know, a solution is going to be easily found and I can just, you know, find somebody who already knows how to do this? Or is this complex and do I have to think differently? What book would you recommend to leaders? I had a book recommended to me, and I don't actually read many uh, business books, but somebody recommended to me, uh, I think it's called Circle of Rivals. It's a Lincoln um, biography, and it was an absolutely beautiful and meaningful uh, description of what it means to be a, a good leader. For me, I've got two to recommend to your listeners that are foundational um, Jeffrey Moore, Crossing the Chasm, and Jim Collins, Good to Great. If you could get every listener to start doing something this week to help them be a better leader, what would that thing be? Take a step back when you're faced with a challenge and articulate what it is you're trying to solve in the form of a question. Start by asking a really, really good question that basically captures the nature of the problem you're trying to contend with? I would say next time you're in a meeting where there's something really important going on and you feel like you know what the answer is, pull yourself back from the table and make yourself a critic. Listen to what other people are saying, offer them critique instead of answers, and watch what happens. And finally, our arbitrary but insightful question, which is this. As a general life principle, is it better to ask why or why not? I'm a, I'm a why person. I like to understand the world. Um, so I would lean towards why, and I probably couldn't justify it any further than that. I'm, I'm with David. Perfect. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Where can people go to find out more about your book, Cracking Complexity, and the work you do with the complexity formula at Syntegrity? Your listeners can learn more at crackingcomplexity.com. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you found today's interview valuable. We'll be back on Friday to discuss the interview and share some of our key takeaways with you. If you want to share some of your own thoughts on what you heard today, or if you want to leave other feedback for the show, email us at community at lifeasleadership.com. And if you think today's interview could be helpful to someone else who cares about becoming a better leader, go ahead and share it with them. Until next time, keep living and leading well. Hey, thanks for checking out this trailer for the Business Bitcoinization Show. My name is Josh Friedemann, and I'll be with you each episode interviewing business owners about how they're using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses. You might be wondering about the name, and I'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about the show and who it's for. Unless you've lived under a rock for the last decade, you've heard of Bitcoin by now. And if you're like me, you heard about it a while ago, but didn't do anything about it until the last couple of years. Then one day, for whatever reason, it finally clicks. And after that, you enter the Bitcoin rabbit hole, as they say. 
And the deeper you get, the more you see the value of Bitcoin. But you know, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you don't know much about Bitcoin, but are interested in learning more. Either way, this show can help you. Each episode will introduce you to an executive or entrepreneur who's using Bitcoin, the hardest money on planet Earth, to improve their life and their business. So, what's with the name? Well, it's a play on the term hyper-Bitcoinization, which is used to describe the eventual rapid adoption of Bitcoin as other currencies get weaker and weaker in relation to it. When you compare a seemingly never-ending supply of dollars to a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist, it feels like only a matter of time until hyper-Bitcoinization happens. The good news is we have the opportunity to be on the front lines of creating a new and frankly better system. Whether you're already sold on Bitcoin and it feels like I'm preaching to the choir, or you're curious to learn more, business Bitcoinization will help you understand how you and your business can be prepared to take advantage of the massive productivity and wealth that Bitcoin will enable. If business Bitcoinization sounds like a show for you, go ahead and subscribe. Obviously, you can subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using right now, or go to www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. Once again, that's www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. I'm looking forward to sharing more soon, and until then, keep living and leading well.